0: IN-DEEP is made possible through the generous support of Manitou Fund. A special thanks to them for helping us share the hidden world of water with you. Florida, famous throughout the world for glorious sunshine and beautiful beaches. This is the Florida everyone knows.
1: But there's another Florida. For decades, Americans have flocked to the Sunshine State.
0: Light industry began moving into the state following World War II.
1: As Florida added jobs, it added new residents. For the businessman and the industrialist, there is profit and opportunity in the changing face of Florida. Between 1950 and 2000, Florida's population grew by 13 million. And it's still booming. One of the fastest growing areas of the state, the Tampa Bay area. It's on the western side of the state, the Gulf side. Renata Sago, our resident Floridian, is here with us today. So, Renata, with all that population growth, uh, I would imagine water demands increase. And with that, I mean, there's got to be some drama.
0: You're right on the money with this, Uh Chad. It does. It's crazy because, I mean, you get here and you talk to people who've lived here long enough, and they'll tell you serious stories about something called the Tampa Bay Water
1: Wars, okay? This is In Deep, a podcast where we shine a light on the neglected world of pipes and sewers that are supposed to keep our water safe. I'm Jen Kim. We've talked a lot on this podcast about the epic struggle to keep waste out of our drinking water. But just getting access to fresh water, that itself can be a thorny problem on so many other fronts. Today, we're heading to the Tampa Bay area of Florida. It's a place that has had to get creative about how to quench its thirst. They've come up with a pretty novel solution, the likes of which we might end up seeing more often as climate change puts water sources at risk. But as Renata Sago is going to tell us, it took a major legal battle for the Tampa Bay region to figure out how to keep everyone's taps flowing. Okay, so Renata, tell me about Tampa Bay. I mean, I know it's about midway down the state, on the west coast, and you know, the Gulf side would i recognize any of the places in the area
0: so first off i should explain that tampa bay is the name of a whole area not a specific city i know people kind of get confused really? about that yeah, yeah. <laughs> there there's a the city of tampa which is home to bush gardens you know amusement park central But then you've got the greater region called Tampa Bay. So Tampa Bay includes Clearwater, which is known for its beaches. It's a popular spring break destination. And you've got St. Petersburg, which is known to retirees as a place to go.
1: Okay, so this is a lush place, like not the kind of place where I would expect there to be water scarcity issues. But that's at the center of the story you're going to tell me, right? Oh, my goodness.
0: Yes. So one of the counties, Pinellas County, where Clearwater and St. Petersburg are located, was booming with development. Okay, people were coming. They were settling. They wanted lakefront property. They wanted access to the beaches. They wanted to do their thing. But the thing is, Pinellas County didn't have the fresh water available to keep that growth up. I talked about this with Honey Rand. She used to handle communications for the state water regulator, and she wrote a book called Water Wars. It details this whole saga, I'm telling you. She says Pinellas was tapping groundwater from an aquifer deep underground, but they're on a peninsula. And at a certain point, when they were pumping that water from the aquifer, they started to have issues.
2: They were sucking in water, and when you suck in the fresh water, um, if it's close enough to the coast as that peninsula is saltwater ends up being sucked in below the fresh water and once it contaminates the fresh water that's saltwater intrusion and then you've got a desalination you've got brackish water so you have to treat it to remove the salt in order to make it drinking water standard
0: so the fresh water from the aquifer was not so fresh anymore All
1: right, remind us what is an aquifer
0: it's like a big sponge that's deep underground. Rain comes down and it seeps through the ground, through porous rock, into the aquifer. An aquifer can take thousands of years to form.
1: Mm, okay.
0: So because Pinellas had those problems with saltwater intrusion, officials decided to head inland to pump water from the aquifer up into a more rural area in a completely different county. It's where the Bartle brothers, Randy and Mark, ran a cattle ranch, and still do today. Their grandfather purchased the ranch back in the 1930s. I got to visit there recently.
2: We were up here at Randy's house, right there, Mm -hmm. and we came down.
1: Paint me a picture. Like, what did it look like?
0: It's this vast green space that's a mix of flatland and hills. Oh, my goodness. It's so beautiful. We're talking palm trees. You've got dragonflies flying around <laughs> there are sandhill cranes which people call angry birds because they make a sound and they sound like <laughs> you know really upset i actually tried to chat up the cows but
1: no luck <laughs> they wouldn't give an interview
2: hello oh and they don't talk back either
0: <laughs> So the various ponds and lakes on the Bartle Brothers ranch had always provided the water for the cows to drink. But in the 90s, those water sources slowly started to dry up. Here's Mark Bartle.
2: We had a ranch that survived from natural ponds and lakes to water the cattle to, a, to basically a, an arid uh, 8,000 acres that, that didn't have any surface water in it anymore, anywhere. Uh, the so
0: 8,000 acres without...
2: Any surface water. At all.
0: There was a drought going on, but they said this one was different. They had never seen their land dry up like this. Here's Randy Bartle.
2: 1990, the Big Fish Lake was bone dry. It had never been completely bone dry before. It had been down to a small, very small pond, but it had never been totally dry. Uh, It went dry so fast. Just everything died. The alligators died. The fish all died. You'd find dead, little dead alligators laying around dried up gator holes out in the, in the pond bottoms. And, you know, it was just a complete disaster.
0: OK, so the Barrow brothers thought they were the only ones having this problem. They started to complain, but they really didn't feel like their complaints were being heard. But residents in other rural areas started to notice some changes with their own drinking water supply. Eileen Hart was one of them. She was part of a neighborhood association in Odessa, Florida. That's an area, Jed, that's rural, but a bit closer to the coast.
2: There were people that would call me at different hours of the day or night with their wells going out, and they were in total panic.
0: This was a big deal here because, well, you don't have water in your well. You know, you're not able to get drinking water. You're not able to... Shower, you're not able to flush your toilet. Things that you usually would be able to do. What they naturally did was they started to complain to the county like, look, what's going on? It eventually became clear that everyone who was having problems was located near well fields that were operated by Pinellas County. Now, remember, these people, the Bartle brothers and Eileen Hart and the other people affected, They did not live in Pinellas. Pinellas was a neighboring county that was going over to the turf, to this rural area in another county, to stick a straw into the aquifer.
1: Okay, so almost a rival county at that point.
0: Yeah, I mean, what they were doing was legal. They had the permits to operate well fields there, though many people started to insist they shouldn't have been given those permits.
1: Hang on, what's a well field? Okay, right. Really good question.
0: So a well field is basically, it's a designated area where you'll find the deep wells and pumps that utilities use to suck up fresh water from deep underground. On any given day, you'll have hundreds of thousands of gallons of water being pumped
1: on a single well field, Jed. Wow. I think I understand how, like, wells... Wells would go dry if, you know, water's coming out of the same aquifer, multiple wells. But why the lakes and and, and ponds and, and wetlands?
0: Honey Rand explained to me that when you turn on the pumps in a water well field, you get something called drawdown. So when a well pumps water from an aquifer, nearby water flows toward the low point of the well to replace the water that's been removed. And the water level near the well goes down. Okay. Here's Honey Rand
2: again. And so the surface waters draw down and the waters underground draw down and it's supposed to reach what's called stasis. And that is where you're taking the water from the environment, but the environment has the ability to recover to a certain level. And and what happened is the system never really reached stasis. That harm the wetlands and it also decimated the lakes on the surface because that's all connected. Uh,
1: okay, so uh, this area is uh, developing like crazy and they're you know desperate for water so they're grabbing it up from mm-hmm. you know the aquifer wherever they can. Yep. Uh, and then they like mess up the access to the aquifer by them so then they stick, you know, a straw into the aquifer somewhere else and and then they mess it up for those people who live near that point. Like, did they not have any other options?
0: Well, they did. But here's the thing groundwater, which is what you tap from aquifers, that could be so much cheaper for utilities to make use of than, say, surface water, which comes from lakes or rivers, or salt water, which comes from the sea. Groundwater is so much less prone to contamination. Because it's so deep underground, and you've got this layer of rock that is naturally filtering that water, too.
1: Okay, so then it's cheaper because you don't have to treat it as heavily? Yep, yep, exactly.
2: Here's Honey Rand again. They were trying to deliver the cheapest possible water to their people, and that makes sense. Every local government wants to do that. Every utility director wants to do that. What was problematic is once the district began to develop the science to demonstrate that the well fields weren't operating the way that was anticipated when the permits were issued, Pinellas didn't want to hear any of it and wasn't interested in any alternatives.
0: There were some attempts to form coalitions and get the counties to play nice with each other, but those did not work. Some of the parties involved insisted that the problems were due to drought and they didn't want to find other water sources. Now, the thing is, you had the South Florida Water Management District or swift mud. That's what they like to call it. Well, Swift Mud had issued permits to all of these counties and Swift Mud was saying, look, we can't just say at this time if this is indeed overpumping, we have to run tests. Well, it took years to run tests to be able to know what was going on and tens of millions of dollars was spent on legal fees during these water wars. But they decided that it was a combination of the drought and man drawing too much water from the aquifer.
1: And water wars sounds so dire.
0: Yeah, it does sound super, very dramatic. And it was very dramatic for people. I mean, so we're talking about aquatic life totally being swept away, trees dying off. We're talking about people's property, people who had purchased what they thought would be lakefront property for the long haul. All of a sudden, whole communities were saying, Look, there is no lake in front of my property. And they decided that the only way to keep drinking water flowing in Tampa Bay would be for the governments to come together and have one sole entity manage their drinking water supply.
1: Oh, wow. Okay. Like a a super agency.
0: Yeah, super agency. So come come with me. I'm going to take you to 1998. Uh, this is the opening ceremony for Tampa Bay Water. That is what the super agency was called.
2: We salute the effort, tenacity, leadership, and courage it took to forge this consensus on one of the most volatile issues facing the Tampa Bay area for more than 25 years, ending a quarter century of conflict.
0: So this sounds like almost
2: like oh
0: an end of war speech almost. I mean, yeah. it's <laughs> right and yeah. it, you would you would think. I mean, I think someone told me it took more than 190 officials to say yes at some point of this process for this super agency Tampa Bay Water to come to fruition. But hey, it exists today and I got to visit Tampa Bay Water's regional surface water treatment plant. So I'll describe how it looks, Jed. It looks like a large industrial water park at first glance. There are pipes that loop around the inside of the main building, and it looked like this huge funnel ride that's big enough to fit like a huge family. Ken Hurd is the chief science and technical officer there. He's been around since the 1990s, before this building had a blueprint.
2: What you see here is the entire treatment process. Today, we're looking at almost half of all the water being used in the Tampa Bay region.
0: He knows every end of this place, and he totally shows it off like he is a fifth grader, and this is his science fair project.
2: This is where I think is really cool. Wow. So when the water comes out, it's just crystal clear. You
0: hear the name Tampa Bay Regional Surface Water Treatment Plant, and you think this is a place that only has surface water running through it, right? (laughs) Well, no. This place is the hub for where all the water is coming from, from the sea, from the river, and from the aquifer. What they do here at this plant is they blend that water all together. They say they're the only water utility in the country that's doing this, that's combining these three water sources like this. By blending the water, they feel it's easier to manage the overall supply.
1: Yeah, you're not like heavily overly relying on one source as opposed to it.
0: Yeah, yeah. And it's really interesting too. I mean, right now it's hurricane season in Florida. And so this is a great time for Tampa Bay Water to collect that water to be able to turn into drinking water. Here's Ken Hurd explaining that.
2: We have a 15 and a half billion gallon reservoir where we can store this water in the wet season. We can pump it. Uh, from a couple of our pump stations on these rivers and canals and send it into our reservoir, so it's like a bank account. We save that for, instead of a rainy day, a dry day.
0: I know we're talking about Tampa Bay water, which is based in Tampa and handles water for various cities, but Tampa has its own unique setup. It draws water from the Hillsborough River mainly, And it treats that water on its own. But the city can buy additional water from Tampa Bay water, which it does when it needs to. During periods of drought, it'll say, hey, Tampa Bay water, we need some of your blended water. And Tampa has explored wastewater as another source that it would want to manage on its own.
1: Ooh, do tell.
0: Ooh, you sound excited. Have you ever had uh, treated wastewater?
1: (laughs) I mean, not that I know of. (laughs) I know that there's some places in California where you can have it.
0: Yeah, yeah, Orange County, which is near you. Well, the rationale is that what the city of Tampa could do is that it could take that wastewater and treat it and then recharge the aquifer with that water, so that would mean more water for everyone.
1: So it's like, uh, as you know, the population is growing. In order to protect yourself, like grab as many sources of water as possible. It sounds like,
0: yeah, the answer is is working together. That's what it's looking like here. You know, you talk to water experts across the country. I've spoken to a couple of water experts, and they say that. Supply is is one big issue, but bureaucracy is an issue as well. There are so many water utilities across this country, some are small and some are large, and they're all trying to share the same resources.
1: okay, I have to ask um what's up with the Bartle brothers did Did the ponds and you know the lake and stuff on the land you know fill back up?
0: Yes, they did ah. They, <laughs> yes, they did. They took me to one spot in particular. Here's Randy.
2: And there's a little bit of a pond right here. that had been completely dry back in May, and then we had enough rain that, it, and yeah, it still got some, got a little water back in it.
0: A lot of people say that there haven't been as many problems since Tampa Bay water started, even though there is a drought right now.
1: You know, it's interesting, Renata. Like. From having done previous reporting and, and other episodes, you know, we talked about keeping sewage out of our drinking water and uh, making sure that the pipes that carry water to people aren't filled with lead. And And what do you do when these pipes get overfilled with water because of heavy storms? And, and like you're talking about, just the extraordinary lengths people are having to go to just to make sure that they get water It just seems like every aspect of water has its own challenges for every part of the country, no matter where you are.
0: And that's the sort of universal problem for a universal necessity.
1: We'll be back after a short break. This is InDeep. I'm Jed Kim. So we just heard that the Tampa Bay area came up with a unique solution to its water scarcity issues by blending water from three different sources. But the problems that forced them to do that solution, those were not unique. In fact, you can find versions of those issues all over the U.S., water scarcity in particular. I talked about this with Radhika Fox. She's the chief executive of the U.S. Water Alliance. It's a national network that includes water utilities, community organizations, and environmental groups, among others. We heard Renata reporting on Tampa Bay, and it kind of surprised me to to realize that parts of Florida could be undergoing water scarcity. That's something I understand as a Californian, like we have huge droughts. But is this water scarcity issue something that is, how widespread is it?
3: It's more widespread than you would think. And I think it has to do with the fact that the water cycle is becoming more intense because of climate change. So for example, in the Places like Minnesota and other Great Lake communities, which we've always historically thought of as very water abundant, water rich, um, also are are seeing scarcity because precipitation levels are changing. But yes, I think water scarcity, uh, water uncertainty is really going to be the new normal uh, all across this country.
1: Remember how the different counties and cities in the Tampa Bay area were pitted against each other for water resources before they ended up uniting? You wouldn't believe how splintered the water utility system is across the country. Radica says it's a situation with a long history. All right, I've I've got a stat that I heard that there are 50,000 water utilities in this country and I mean that's just mind-blowing. Like, how did we get to this point and and how How is it complicating things?
3: You know, it's important to remember that there was really no master plan, right, for America. We hmm. um, annexed land uh, and went further and further into the West uh, as the, the years went on. And as we kind of uh, expanded across the country to the America sort of that we know now, a town really became a town when they had a post office and when they had a water system. And there was no master engineer that was sort of watching uh, America's expansion and saying, okay, rather than, you know, Jed, you creating a water system, you know, in your new plot of land, why don't you actually connect to the one nearby? Nobody was doing that, right? So a consequence uh, then was really this 51,000 drinking water systems. And what is interesting is that 55% of drinking water systems in this country serve less than 500 people. And so the problem that creates is that, you know, how are 500 people going to be able to afford all of the costs of operating and maintaining water systems, of buying the chemicals to treat them, of upgrading the pipes when they start to break and age? Um, And so that is a huge uh, problem for us in this country, um, some of what we can do to make progress are things like the kind of inter-local agreements that um, were talked about as far as happening in Tampa. Um, I also think that with COVID-19, um, this issue of all these small systems has really come to the forefront. And I'm hopeful that we will see more consolidation of these systems. Um, It is starting to happen more. It used to be a really taboo word, like everybody, you know, needs to have their own system. They need to be independent. But I think that people are starting to recognize that we are stronger when we partner and, and that this sort of consolidation needs to continue.
1: And finally... Radhika and I talked about this kind of double bind we're in where, you know, we're up against climate change and we need water. But some of the ways we procure water can have a big carbon footprint. Pumping groundwater and desalinating seawater, for example, those are both super energy intensive.
3: And so for communities who are getting to the point of considering and utilizing desal, I would really advise that they've really exhausted um, you know, all other water um, supplies, whether it's reuse uh, of water in buildings and in homes, whether it's uh, taking wastewater that is being treated anyway and reusing that for things like irrigation. So I think there's lots of uh, things that we can do before we get to desal and then when we If we are utilizing desal to do it very mindfully in thinking about the carbon footprint, the footprint on aquatic life, that sort of thing.
1: That's it for our show today. Our production team for this episode includes Renata Sago, Annie Baxter, Chris Julin, Todd Melby, and Dan Ackerman. I'm Jed Kim. Kristen Schmidt runs our social media, and we get lots of help from Ellie Lyons and Lauren Humpert. Break Breakmaster Cylinder composed our theme music.
2: This is APM.